Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. So we're in 2 Corinthians. Today we're going to do 8 and 9. But I want to focus a lot on this first verse. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to churches in Macedonia. And uh, we're going to talk about privilege. You talked about the privilege of being in family. We're talking about a, a, a privilege. But it helps to remember this whole context with Paul. He's been talking about relationship, intimacy, even in tough times. And he's been talking about God's grace. <clears throat> God's grace of empowerment. God's grace and forgiveness. God's grace of presence. This is empowerment. It's, it's a powerful... Something wrong here. Sorry. Oh, okay. So he's leading it off that it's about grace. Then he says, For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty, so this is interesting. So he's saying, Thomas Church of Macedonia. Remember, this letter's to Corinth, it's in Achaia, which is today's southern Greece. He had just recently, well, actually, when he wrote it, he's in Macedonia, but it's not today's Macedonia, it's northern Greece. <clears throat> and he says, for during their severe order ordeal of affliction and their abundant joy and extreme poverty. So he's mentioning affliction, joy, and poverty together. <clears throat> and this overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Do we see that only happens by God's grace? They're in severe affliction. They're in poverty, but there's abundant joy and generosity. So this is like we often talk about, we want to enjoy the grace of God. <clears throat> but this is a very practical part of the, of the grace of God. And there's a, there is a participation we have in the grace of God. And it's a privilege. For I can, as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means, and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the favor of partnering in this ministry to the saints. And not as we expected, instead they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. <clears throat> they're begging for a chance to give. They're in poverty and they're begging for a chance to give. Now I want to make it clear, when it says to the ministry, this was not them supporting Paul's ministry. Paul didn't ask for support for his ministry. What was happening is there was a famine most people think it was during the famine, although this may have been a little bit after. It's even predicted in the book of Acts. And it actually affected a lot of the Roman Empire, not just Jerusalem. But it was worse than the poorer provinces. Um, as we said before, Corinth was a senatorial province. Corinth was a very affluent city. Macedonia, the cities of Macedonia where the Christians were, weren't so affluent. And definitely Jerusalem wasn't affluent. The other part is, there is a, a poverty of oppression in Jerusalem due to persecution. So at this stage, really in the church, the worst persecution came from other religions and from the Jewish religion, not from the Roman government yet. And it was especially bad in Jerusalem, because that's where the Jews were stamping it out. One thing we see in, in uh, 
one of the, the ministries, one of the groups we partner with a lot, there's actually two of them that we really partner with a lot that are involved overseas. One is in Central Asia, and they mainly focus on churches and believers and, and really family-like communities, like you were mentioning. I like to say it inside of churches. Family communities, but they're in oppressed states. Um, I, I won't even tell you where the country is or the two countries are because we, we can't be public about it. <clears throat> but a form of oppression in those nations is they oppress Christians economically. Um, when someone converts to Christ, they will ostracize them. They may take away their business, or at least the community will ostracize them and uh, basically cancel them out. It's a common form of persecution, and that's what was going on in Jerusalem. People are basically being ostracized by their community. So they're suffering in poverty for the faith. The other group we're with also has that, but also what happens to them is they target young people. They minister mainly in East Asia, and it's to, to orphans primarily, but it's to, to children, rescuing them from drugs and from slavery. And they end up as oppressed poor because there's no safety net in these countries. And so the only safety net for these kids they rescue from slavery or the drug rings is what they can provide. So the whole thing going on here, when it clear is, Paul's not saying, give me money to my ministry. He's taking up a collection. All, at every town he visits on his third journey, he's taking a collection up for the Jews, the Christian Jews. Okay, clear enough? So they beg to be part of this. They're like saying, they recognize this is a privilege. We are partnering with the work of God to bless our brethren in Jerusalem. So they're begging. Their, their heart is, no, Paul's not soliciting it. They're begging to give. And they gave first to the Lord. They're attuned with the will of God and by the will of God to them. Uh, a phrase with that we often, or at least I'll often think of is, I have to be Jesus-led, not need-driven. Doesn't mean I ignore the needs, but often if you go by the emotional plea, the solution you come up with isn't God's solution. So they were, by the will of God first, they were in tune with Jesus, and then ministered. <clears throat> so we might urge Titus, as he already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous taking, undertaking among you. This is important. Because I've seen a lot of people say, look how manipulative Paul is being that he's bringing up what the Macedonians have done. No, he's honestly saying, I'm, and later he didn't say, no, I, I am using them as an example, but I'm not being manipulative. I'm being explicit about this. But the also part is, is you have to understand, and it helps to think in this, Paul has already visited Corinth before. Okay, because when he comes to Corinth next, it's his third trip. He's already talked to him about the plight. And the Corinthians were like, yeah, we're all in. We're all in. And he's basically saying, great, you said you were all in. Now it's time to show it. It's interesting. One of uh, my oldest son, our oldest son, <clears throat> his major was psychology. And one of the things he talked about as he learned is there is a psychology they talk about the placebo effect of intent. People will go to a place, hear about someone's plight, and hear about the need to do something. And they'll all say, wow, it's great, we understand, we'll go there. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll support you in this. And then they go home and they feel better. Psychology, they, in psychological terms, they have this placebo effect. They feel like they've really done something good. They said the interesting thing is they've actually done nothing. 
They attended it, and they intend to, and they say we'll support it, but they don't actually come across with any money or any goods or any time. And, and that's what Paul's warning them. <clears throat> He's basically saying, hey, you all said we're, we're in with you. Now already show that you're in with us. Like intent can make you feel good, but intent doesn't, doesn't really mean anything. <clears throat> now as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and utmost eagerness, <clears throat> helps to know that when, when the people were talking and going back and forth with Paul, there's a bit of arrogance in Corinth. So I have to admit, I'm not totally convinced this is purely Paul affirming all the good in them or be saying, hey, you claim to be all this stuff. But either way, he's saying, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. See, this is a tough subject. It can often bring up emotions, which I want to address even later, because it's interesting that money brings up emotions with us. Now, part of it is because, sadly, the church does have reputations of always having their hands out. I mean, we, we do have the televangelists that are constantly asking for money. And so there is wrong done. There is a sadness where churches will raise fortunes. And like as one person put it, I think it's down to 3.5%. Only 3.5% of the money raised by churches in America actually leave America. It's mainly spent on ourselves. And as being a very affluent nation, that's, that's actually shows us a sign that we are not in tune with the Spirit. <clears throat> I do not say this as a command, but I'm mentioning, I am mentioning, sorry, by mentioning God. I do not say this as a command, but I am, by mentioning the eagerness of others, testing the genuineness of your love. This is why I say it's not manipulative, because he's explicit. He's saying these guys are poor. And in Corinth, there probably are some well-to-do believers, because Corinth is very well-to-do. Macedonia, not so much. And he's saying, look, it, they recognize this is a chance to participate with God. It is a privilege. And if they can get this privilege, shouldn't you? <clears throat> I went too far again, sorry. All right. For know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so by his poverty you might not become rich. Okay, don't let clumsy thumbs distract from the point. <clears throat> he's doing two things here. He's pointing at the love of brothers, and he started by saying grace. This is what the grace of God looks like. Look what's going on in their hearts. Now he's bringing up appreciation. Because he's saying, be aware of this. Jesus gave it all up to make you wealthy. Uh, he wrote in Philippians, Jesus who possessed all the deity and all that entails, completely emptied himself, took on human form, even the form of the servant, even died as a criminal on a cross so that we're made rich. So he's also talking about this whole motive of appreciation. <clears throat> and in this matter, I am giving my opinion. It is beneficial for you who began last year not only to do something, but even the desire to do something. Now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it in according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. So he's saying, you've been blessed. Why have you been blessed? For I do not mean that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality between your present abundance and their need so that their abundance may also supply your needs. So he's saying, 
I'm not after making you poverty stricken, but look, the guys in Jerusalem are being oppressed. They're being persecuted and they need help. You have abundance. So what should you do? <clears throat> in order that there may be equality as it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, the one who had little did not have too little. Interesting, he quotes Exodus 16 here. Exodus 16 is not a very pretty chapter of Jewish history. So the people are in the wilderness and they're basically whining like crazy. Oh, we don't have enough food. Oh, that we were in Egypt. You know what? In Egypt, we've been slaves, but at least we had food to eat. Um, sorry, I go back. I'm old enough to remember Keith Green, and he even wrote a song about this. You know, we were eating leeks and onion, you know, leeks and onions by the Nile. Ooh, what breath! But dining out in style. Did you bring us out into the desert? They're complaining. Did you bring us out into the desert to kill us, to starve us to death? I mean, this is this is not exactly a, a great positive chapter. In fact, God. In fact, when you read it in Numbers, it's even heavier because God actually sends quail to feed them meat, and that doesn't turn out so good, but we won't get into that. He gives them manna, <clears throat> and what happens is in the morning, the dew comes. So the quail come and give them meat at night. In the morning, a dew arrives, and when the dew evaporates, there's this manna. And we don't really know what manna is. In fact, that's why they named it manna. Manna is the Hebrew word for saying, what is this? So they don't even know what it is, but they gather it, and when they press it together, it becomes like wafers that tasted sweet. So it says they're wafers like honey. And when they, when they go to collect it, <clears throat> um, they're all told on, on most normal days, everybody gather an omer for each person, so there's always enough. <clears throat> and then it says, but they didn't gather equally. But it's interesting because those that gathered a lot and those that gathered a little, it somehow still worked out that everybody had just enough. Now, there were people that tried to gather extra and save it, which is interesting because Moses actually told them, because God told Moses this, do not worry about collecting enough for tomorrow. In fact, I'm telling you, eat whatever you collect. Do not try to save it. Absolutely don't try to save it. And so what do they do? They try to save it. And overnight it gets worms and smells bad. And Moses could tell by the smell. And he gets mad and says, I just told you don't do this, and you did it. Because <clears throat> he said, God's going to provide every day what you need, except on the sixth day. On the sixth day, you gather two omers, so you do have enough for two days. And overnight, it won't rot, because God wants you to not have to even collect this on the Sabbath. He wants you to enjoy the Sabbath with him. Sounds great. Except it comes Sabbath day, you know what happened? People went out to collect it. And they're bummed because there's none out there. And Moses again going, what is wrong with these people? He's like, I just told you what to do and you're not doing it. Anyway, I, always, I just find this interesting because I don't think it's an accident he refers to this. Because one of the main things that shows the hard heart of people in, in the wilderness is how much they complained. Because a joyful heart and understanding the grace of God leads to an appreciation. And appreciation leads to generosity. And generosity actually leads to more appreciation. It's a cyclical thing. And I'm actually saying one of my points now, but as a kid, because I'm going to emphasize it. Because the thing you have to understand is why do people try and hold it on overnight? It's because they have fear they won't have it the next day. Because the idea of the grace of God, and this, this at least, and maybe, and I will say, honestly, I'm speaking for myself mainly. Neither my wife and I have ever been tempted to, like, own a Mercedes or go on, you know, own a plane. Like, we weren't lured away by that kind of affluence. 
But what can affect our heart with money, where it can tug at our heartstrings, where we have a heart issue, is fear. Well, God, I kind of want to hang on to what I have, because what if things turn bad? And I'm not saying we don't plan ahead. There's Proverbs saying plan ahead and prepare for your aged year. But we often go way beyond what we need, because we get insecure. We get that fear. Well, I maybe want to collect a little extra mana on Monday, because what if the dude doesn't come on Tuesday? And again, it shows a hard issue about a lack of trust. <clears throat> so I'm going, to, I'm going to skip part of eight, but I'm just going to tell you. So one thing I'm going to do want to emphasize, do not just attend the gifts, actually give. That's, that's part of what Paul's whole thing in eight is saying. You said you wanted to give. That's great. It's exciting. But let's see you actually do it. He also talks a lot in a very awkward way, the way he phrases it, at least to me it seems that way. But basically, he's talking about Titus and others. He's basically just being practical. He's saying, look, there's going to be a total of three brothers that carry this collection to Jerusalem, and you can trust them. These are godly men. They're not going to rob the money. They're, they're going to get the money where it goes. And then he explains how I have bragged about you people in Corinth, about how you were the first to say, yeah, we want to support the brethren in Jerusalem. So I have bragged to the Macedonians about it. And, and it's in this context that I'm going to jump now to way down in chapter 9. So he's talking about you need to be prepared to give. Why? Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be put to shame, to say nothing of you in this undertaking. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised so they may be ready as a bountiful gift and not as an extortion. In other words, he's saying, I don't want it to look like, oh, we had to show up and coerce you in numbers. And really, I aim to say this, see this as courtesy. It's again, like if, some, if someone's bragging and saying, you know what, the, this, this family, okay, the Carters, the Carters are super hospitable. In fact, man, they'll put out a spread for you if you ever stay with them, it's awesome. Wouldn't it be rude if I told a stranger that and said, so let's go show up there now and we just show up at 5.30? Wouldn't it make sense? I'd say, hey, this is great. And then to call ahead and say, hey, you know what? <clears throat> Hi, Joyce and Jerry. I'm calling you ahead because I'm bringing people over. I'd like to bring them over in two days because I've told them how great you cook and how hospitable you are. In other words, there's a forewarning. Everybody see that? Okay, because I don't see Paul's being manipulative. But I see him as being very candid. Because we've already talked about the relationship and building trust and sharing this. But there's a transition that happens from last year, chapter 7, but on. This last part of it, you start seeing Paul being really candid. Because he's kind of saying, good, we're all in this together. Now we got to be real people. You talk and brag about your intent. You brag about how holy you are. Let's see you fork it over with some reality. Because candor is part of love. <clears throat> The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of you must give as you've made up your mind, not regretfully or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's actually the word hilarious. He loves a hilarious giver. Because if we have the right heart and understand, we're getting to participate with the very work of the God of the universe. This is an awesome privilege. And those poverty-stricken in Macedonia got this. He needs the wealthy in Corinth to get it. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so, there is always, so that you always have enough 
God. So that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. God blesses people. He really does. I'm not into prosperity doctrine, but there is a truth I don't want to deny. He gives abundantly, but he gives abundantly so it flows to others. God told Abraham, and this is what the Jews didn't get, I will bless you, Abraham, and through you bless all nations. Part of what the Jews did not get is they started thinking, we're the privileged chosen ones. We're the only ones God cares about. But they missed it. What he said is, I chose you as a blessing to all the other nations. I chose to bless Abraham to bless every ethnic group on the planet. And the word, the Hebrew word for every ethnic group, for ethnos, they translated also as Gentile. And he's saying, you keep thinking you're better than those dogs, the Gentiles, and you forgot. I blessed you so you would bless the Gentiles. <clears throat> as it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. That's Psalm 112. In Psalm 112, the important thing is, he's not talking about God blessing the poor. When you read Psalm 112, he talks about how blessed is a person who follows the Lord. Then he goes right into, and you know that because they're generous. And the he is the we, the they. In fact, some translations translate this they. He's saying those who bless and walk with God, they are the ones who scatter the, their seed abroad. They are the ones who bless the poor. Their righteousness endures forever through that generosity. <clears throat> he who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He didn't say I multiply the bread so you can stuff your face with more food. He's saying the seed you use to sow is what I multiply. As one guy said, God blesses and he promises to always multiply what you give, not what you take. Okay, when he fed the 5,000, somebody gave him fish and bread. After they gave it in Christ's hands, it got multiplied. <clears throat> and it will increase the harvest of your righteousness, which I'll get to later, but I want to make sure. The goal is to increase the harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God. That is the ultimate goal. We want to glorify God. We want to bring thanksgiving to them. Jesus, when he said, when you do your good works for men, they will see the good you do and glorify the Father in heaven. And that's why we're here, is to glorify the Father in heaven. <clears throat> for the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs, and that's great, it supplies the needs of the saints, but it also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. <clears throat> so, I want to clear this scripture that the Prosperity Doctrine quotes, it is a true scripture. And I, and I will testify, we've been blessed by God. Yes, Carl and I were both, like, we were both raised alpha hard workers. My, my family is crazy hard workers. Um, most of my family were entrepreneurs. They ran their own businesses. But we both will attest, we've been prospered by God. There are ways he has just prospered us out of nowhere. Like, like, not even, like he has just freely handed it to us. This ends up a heavy for thing. Like, Carl and I end up with long conversations. Um, we'll just see an example of the mindset. One morning, Carla woke up from a horrible nightmare, and she was freaked out. I said, Carla, what is the matter? And she says, well, you were talking about responsibility, and I was thinking, you were saying how I want to be careful that we don't get so blessed that it poisons us. Because the more we're given, that means we're responsible to ask God how to give it out. And I had this nightmare that we won the lottery, 
and it just bummed me out. It's like, oh no, we won the lottery and now we gotta know what to do with all this money. And she's just really frightful. And then I was able to pat her on the head and say, love, we've never bought a lottery ticket. So if God somehow has us win the lottery without ever buying a ticket, I think he'll tell us what to do with it. <laughs> but the rich young ruler, it's interesting. Because when Jesus told him, you lack one thing, sell all you have and come follow me. When he said, sell all you have, he did not say, give it to us. Because Jesus, I mean, there were rich people supporting Jesus's ministry while he was walking around. That's all, most of them must have been women because it's the women they were ever first to in scripture. But it's interesting. And this is where I, I get a little thing where I guess my test as if, if uh, the, the TV preacher, whoever else is preaching, are they sincere? Because Jesus did not say, send me $1,000 and God will give you 10000 And sadly, I've heard that quote. I mean, that is a quote I've heard on televangelists. Jesus said, sell all you have and give it to the poor. He didn't say, give it to my ministry. He said, give it to the poor and come follow me. Um, one of the stories I remember of, uh, <clears throat> there was this lady... And she was a widow, and she was rather well-to-do. And she wanted to join this Jesus community. If there, were, there were communities around where you can go in and you live with them. And they serve the poor, and they work in the gardens, and it, it's beautiful. But the wisdom, I, the director of this community was very wise. Because he told her, before you join us, I want you to unload all this wealth you have. And when you do... Give it somewhere else. Do not give any of it here. I want you to give that wealth. Ask God where to give it and give it elsewhere. Because when you come here, if you give the wealth to us, you will always have the thing in your heart of, oh, we're building this because you gave us the money for it. And we believe we're building what God provides for. We don't want you feeling like you owe us anything. We also don't want you thinking that we love you because you gave us a fortune. So we want you to give it to somebody else that has nothing to do with us, then come be with us. Because then we know the love is sincere in both directions. And that's what Jesus did. And what's amazing is the offer Jesus makes. Because he says, give it all away. And this, this is a rich young ruler. He not only has money, he has power. And basically Jesus is saying, give that all away, and now you can come follow the Lord of the universe, the God of all creation, and I'll give you real power, and I'll give you real riches. This is an amazing offer. And my heart strings would tell you that is, I don't want to fall into what he did. Because he went away sad. He went away moping. Because he realized, my heart can't let go. I mean, you think about it, Jesus invited him to follow him. And his hang up on wealth, it, it, it blocked it. He couldn't say yes. And that, that's just, it, to me, I, I don't feel anger towards him. I feel really sad. And I don't want to be in that place. <clears throat> Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience. We don't talk about obedience much in modern church, it seems like. You want to glorify God, you obey. To the confession of the gospel of Christ by the generosity of your partnership. I want to say this is an amazing thing. He's saying partner with us. See, one thing, one thing that blessed me about this, this church is this church extremely generous to things that have nothing to do with this church directly. <coughs> one of the ministries I talked about 
that one where basically they helped the oppressed church um, in a country that I can't even mention. This church as a group gives to that very same ministry. In other words, what I feel like it's affirming is Paul's making a collection for the oppressed poor who are being persecuted. And that is exactly who this church supports. Okay, so partnership with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given to you. Thanks be to God for this incredible gift. This partnership is a gift. What's really beautiful is this is Gentile believers giving to Jewish believers. And to be real frank, you read the other letters, the fact that Jews and Gentiles were getting saved, the fact that you had Roman citizens getting saved, you had barbarians, Scythians, you had all these different cultures getting saved was causing a lot of grief. They were not exactly walking in unity. And I look at this step as amazing because with all the flack that happened between Jews and Gentiles, imagine the power of the gift when Paul gets back to Jerusalem and those brothers who carry it and actually guard it, there were been many numbers because Roman peace wasn't complete. It was dangerous. When they bring this gift, you have Jewish believers being helped, not by fellow Jews, but by believers who are Gentile. This, this, is like, this is not something the world would be used to. This would be an amazing testimony to God. <clears throat> so, part of this is this scripture is so powerful. It's a statement. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I want to make it clear, because this is part of where I think sometimes when we read the Beatitudes, we mess up. Because we read a bunch of shoulds in it. When what it really is, is Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor. He's not really bunching a bunch of shoulds. He's just, he's preaching to a bunch of poor people. And is making an observation. Blessed are the poor, because you'll inherit. Blessed are the meek, you'll inherit. You can't serve God in money. He's not saying it should. He's not making a command. He's just stating a fact. He's just saying, you can't do this. No one can do this. It's a fact. You cannot serve God and money. It's going to be one or the other. It's impossible. And sometimes we try to do the impossible. Sometimes I've tried to do the impossible. It has gotten away in my life. Sometimes it's like I worked extra hours that probably I shouldn't have. Because I'm going, yeah, but I can make more money in this weekend than in in five days of normal work because of what they're wanting to pay me. And I end up working weekends that God did not call. And I could even tell afterwards, like, you know what? I'm sorry, God. I was serving money, not you. Because I was doing something that calculated in dollars and cents made sense. But it wasn't your voice. It wasn't your grace. Remember, this whole thing was, I'm talking to you about the grace of God. This is not what your grace is about. See, the beauty of this is I have found, and I answered scripture, generosity has to come from the heart. But then the other interesting thing is, as we're generous from the heart, it helps us live from the heart more. It's a cyclical thing. They feed each other, generosity and heart. Um, I, I work in a school where we're constantly talking to students about what is your identity in Christ? Who are you in Christ? What is your identity? Don't believe what the world says. Don't even believe what some churches say. 
you're not just a, a, a dirty snake, a slothful worm, that you're just lucky God isn't squashing you. Okay, that isn't who you are. He gave you a new heart. You're awesome. You really are. I mean, and I'm not blowing light up your skirt, okay? Because he has made me wonderful. And the very spirit of the living God is in me. Like Paul says, we have something precious. It's in a cargo that's weak. It's in a vessel that's weak. And I'll admit, as I get older, this vessel seems even more weak. Mm-hmm. But we hold something precious. We are precious to him. Part of this is harvesting righteousness. As we're generous and we give and, and take advantage of the privilege, we will actually feel more privileged. It will become more real to us. That's part of harvesting righteousness. I am participating in what he's doing. And the privilege of giving to the things of God is it has eternal benefit. What gets in the way of my heart is I get caught up in things that are temporary. I get caught up in building on things that are material and temporary. As I'm more generous, I have more appreciation for what God provides. And as I appreciate that God provides everything, it's easier to be free with it. The opposite of that is the grumbling. Remember he referred to Exodus. The grumbling and the complaining. Wanting more than he offers. And this is is the one I, I didn't go into a whole lot. But... The opposite isn't just grumbling and complaining. The opposite of appreciation is coveting. Well, yeah, I'm glad God gave me a car. But you know what? That guy's got a four-wheel drive truck. And it's really nice. Well, yeah, God, I'm glad you provided for me. But yeah, but these guys have better houses. And again, it's not appreciating what God gave. And there are good things that people have that we don't. The things are good. But we have to understand a trust that God gives us what we need and what's best for us. So if you aren't getting a good thing that someone else has, it's because God knows better. God knows what he can trust us with. He knows what he can bless us with that won't poison us. <clears throat> so again, it's the generosity comes from appreciation. It also feeds in the appreciation. Reliance on God versus ourselves. And this is, this is I can say, is the hard issue Carla and I both have had to deal with. I shouldn't say Carla, she's not here. No, Carla's doing perfect. This is a hard issue I deal with. <clears throat> is I can go fear-based. God's asking me to give more than what seems reasonable at times. And I have to say, okay, God, am I relying on you? But this is tugging on me inside. It's, it's kind of hard. To this revealing, I have a fear base. I'm, I'm not. I'm believing I have to keep some of the manna for myself. When God is saying He'll provide what I need tomorrow, He has given me abundant seed for sowing, not for eating, for sowing. <clears throat> and then it's a trust versus control. <clears throat> and I always, every time I do this, I always think of Bob. I always think Keith Green songs, and then the Bob Dylan song. Though the Bob Dylan song was "You," I have to serve somebody. But his line says, have you ever met a man, actually I can't remember the lyrics exact, but this may be a parable. Or have you ever heard, or heard someone say, if I had his money, I'd do things my way. We have this belief, if I had enough money, I could then do things my way. What he's talking about is this illusion of control. We start thinking we have to grow and have more so we can control things. Because he says, if I had his money, I'd do things my way. 
And the whole message of the song is, you're nuts. Because you're going to serve somebody, whether you're rich or poor. You have to decide who you're going to serve. It's interesting, it's a rich young ruler came to Jesus going, how do I enter the kingdom of God? Because even with all his wealth, he'd still have the haunting thoughts at night. Yeah, I got my money now, but what's this doing for me in the long run? And then the other one is, which this can make it freer to give. If we remember, we are stewards, we're not owners. So what God's asking you to give, you don't really own anyway. You don't have to own in the first place. This is only it helps, helps with some uh, people I work with for doing decision making, is they'll get really anxious, like, I gotta make the right decision. What if this you know, investment goes bankrupt? What if this happens and that happens? It often helps them relax and go, you know how to get this emotion out? It's not yours in the first place. So you can trust God to guide you because it ain't your money. It's his. Reminds me of like one financial advisor talked to said, you know what reality is? Other people can know what to do with their money and invest just as well as I do. What I bring them is distance so they avoid the panic of emotion. Because when people invest their own money and they go down, they panic and sell at the wrong time. If they give it to me, I don't panic because it's not my money. So when it goes down, I can still believe, yeah, but in five years, it'll be worth more. And he said, that's, that's the main thing that, uh, that uh, some advisors give their customers is distance because they get too emotional over it. So the idea is if you really recognize it's not yours, it's a little easier to give because we have the blessedness of not possessing anything and yet having everything. Okay. <clears throat> so the thing I want to end this with is what I'm going to get out of this eight and nine is that it's an invitation. So it's not coercion, even though it may look manipulative, if you really see it, what Paul's saying is this is an amazing invitation. And I want to leave you with is really spend a time seeking and asking the Lord, what are you inviting me to give? And this gets way beyond money, because at least for me, the real touch point, the real emotional moment where I get clingy is time. And for you, it may be something else. It may actually be an object, okay? Because um, there are times, too, where God says, yeah, don't give him money, but give him this thing. And, and I don't have time. We've already ran over a little bit. But powerful stories where people talk about they held this one item precious to themselves, and then God called them to give it up. And what is that thing in our heart? Be it time, be it money, whatever. Let's have an honest time. So I just ask this for just a couple minutes. We're just going to ask Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to ask you to share this one, but ask Holy Spirit, whisper to me, what are you inviting me to participate with that I'm clinging to? And if, if, if I'm resisting, what is, what is it I'm fearful of? So I ask you that now. Holy Spirit, just speak to us. God, reveal to us where our fears are making us cling instead of being open-handed. to do is not only remember this, but be it time, be it an item, be it a relationship, whatever it is, don't leave here feeling good with an intent. Act on it. Act on it.
Um, I mentioned relationship, I didn't hear the whole story, but I, I still love the story of one friend who had a, they broke off a relationship that wasn't that healthy. And they were fearful about it. And then a year later, that person came to the Lord because they broke off the relationship. They really gave that person to the Lord, and then the Lord was able to collect. Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.